is Parlor Request, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Parlor Request is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. Starring two techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, and Tyler Dinner. Hey, everybody. This week's episode, Newsday 3.0. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another Pull Request. My name is Eric Newman, and to the left of me is Chris Grabowski, who is still actively working on a hotfix that we're not legally allowed to talk about. But to the left of him, <laughs> now that he lives in Bushwick, is Tyler Dinner laughing over there. How are you, Tyler? I'm great, Eric. How you doing, man? I have uh, been a ball of emotion lately, but I'm still standing, I'm still strong, and if I say any more lyrics from that song, we will have a lawsuit, so... Uh, well, uh, you know, maybe we can update the the show, the, the catchphrase, because it's all Bushwick now. That's true. Well, you know, the big lie that I've been saying is that we're a Brooklyn technophiles when Christians lived in Manhattan this whole time. It's been a lie, a facade. We've it's been, been I mean, it's been many things. And now <laughs> uh, we all live next to each other. I have to walk past Christian's place to get to you. And you have to, and we all kind of live in a nice sequence <laughs> or a line. And Christian lives right across the street from the cheapest bar around. And right across the street from a really bougie uh, supermarket. It's a nice one. Didn't Welcome it used to be everyone. like associated, and now they now they have all of the frou frou white people stuff. Mm, I don't know. I feel like that one's been there a while. There was uh, like a C, one of those seed markets or whatever they're called. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. That was down the street on Flushing. C town. Th- yeah, C town. But that's been shut down for years and years now. So. That's the only real grocery store I know in the neighborhood other than uh, at Broadway, and no one wants to go to Broadway. Sure, or if you want to go to Myrtle Wyckoff, there's a food bazaar, but that's all the way over there. Yes, and if there you're wondering... A, um, oh, go ahead. There is a Key Foods at the Calvin Wyckoff, but this is not... <laughs> this is not, not Google Maps. grocery store. <laughs> this isn't yet. Um, anyway... Uh, let's see. There's a lot, a lot of stuff to talk about. First, that we all now live in not even the same borough, but we live in the same neighborhood, almost the same street. Watch That's pretty out. cool. And the people, uh, I have to say, that would be happiest the most are people that we haven't actually talked to yet. That's right. Our hello, our studio audience. How are you? I keep them in a Tupperware container during the week, and I take them out for Sundays just for us. And they've got sale because today is a Tuesday. And we're recording the show during the week again. They're and so confused. Again, there is something that prevents us all from being here during the week. Because why? Because we work during the week. That's why we do the show on a Sunday. So. It's okay. The audience still comes. Well, they're in a Tupperware container. It's like what happens if you keep a plant locked up for too long. It just suddenly decays. And when you want it, it's too late. It's already gone. I like an avocado. There you go. Like an avocado. Uh, let's see. Top of the news, personally, is that I finally upgraded to Mac OS Sierra. That's right. Oh, hey, come on, guys. Come on. That's not fair. That's not fair. I've been, it's been many years since I've upgraded the operating system on my Macintosh because, of course, I'm using one that's like three years old now. And various software titles have, have prodded me over the years uh, to upgrade, including TurboTax. That's how bad it's been, that I even got reminded <laughs> from a tax software that really should just be a website anyway. Um, so I finally did it. I bit the bullet. And uh, because this is a tech show, really quickly, while Apple has got really good with upgrades in place, I, as a geek, really prefer a clean install. So what I always do is I have an external with a shadow copy of whatever operating system I'm about to install and slowly set it up over the course of a week or so. 
and then you know when I and then the last thing I do is move over all of my data, all my user data, all of the the apps that I'm working on, all of the code and all that stuff, since that changes really quickly. The uh, the advantage is that if you hit a wall, like oh this software that I use every day somehow isn't supported on the next operating system yet for some reason, then uh, you can easily just restart back into your old machine, like everything is fine. And then that's kind of what I've been doing uh, over the course of many months. So now everything is up to date and all my stuff is over, but it's the little things. It's the little settings, like the number of minutes before it goes to sleep or the, the, all, of the, all of your uh, desktop wallpapers aren't exactly the way that they were. You don't have the right menu widgets or the order of the dock icon. Stuff like that. The little things that you always forget about. Like when you leave a house. When you move out of a house. It's the little things that really, you know, that really take up the time. You know what I'm saying, Tyler? <laughs> or am I just talking out of my ass again? Uh... No, you're right. You're right. I wanted to make a joke about that, but you're right. <laughs> and then the other thing I did is I have another external hard drive that has a, a, the, a fossilized copy of my old system. So now, if there's anything, anything that goes wrong, I can just restore the image from the old system back onto my laptop, and then I still, and then I, and then I can just move these da- this data around, which will take hours and hours, but you know, does work and will prevent me from losing anything while upgrading my operating system. And, of course, I could have avoided all of that and the two external hard drives if I just clicked the button, Upgrade, to Mac OS Sierra, rather than installing from scratch. But that's... Oh, boy. Why do the simple things when the harder things are much more time-consuming? It's okay. More on Apple to come with their developer conference uh, next Oh, man, there's many more things about Apple. They, um... I don't know. They have definitely fallen from grace. But like you said, we'll get to that right after this uh there's a little bit there's one thing about iot that we didn't get to last time and that's because it just came out uh asus released a tinkerboard which uh it's it's a little it's like a raspberry pi competitor where and it, but it's actually higher end than raspberry pis because it has uh where was it oh no you know what i forgot tyler what you forget? Remember, remember when I said the little things? Mm-hmm. One little thing that I forgot to add <laughs> was something that allows us to do this whole show, um, which is the uh, little extension I use that uh, that annotates websites, so I don't read the whole page. And uh, I forgot because I'm an idiot. I, I forgot to install that, and so now none of the notes that I had taken on any of this stuff is showing up and it's really Eric uh, has no notes I have guys no, notes. no I guys have, I have notes they're right here in in Canada no actually while I was stalling for time I actually managed to install the extension right on my computer so that was fantastic excellent <laughs> Sorry, Tyler, I feel like the audience is cutting you off. You might have to speak up a little bit. I apologize. Oh, I'm used to it now. They're good. Well, I mean, you know, you're on the show. They're not on the show. They're just around the show. So <laughs> I know. Right. I expected it, though. We gave them an extra drink because it was the weekday. And Yeah, that's true. They get that's real true. rowdy. I just had to cut their mic because it was just too much. <laughs> I should have um, had an extra drink with them. Ah, that's, that's what it is. The yeah. Asus Tinkerboard includes a 1.8 GHz Rock Chip RK3288 system on a chip quad core processor, offers HD and Ultra HD video playback support. It has 2 gigs of dual channel DDR3 RAM and a micro SD storage slot. It runs on Asus Tinker OS, which is a Debian based Linux distro, and has Android support. As far as connectivity is concerned, it has Bluetooth 4.0. 
and onboard 802.11 BGN Wi-Fi support. Tinkerboard has four USB 2.0 uh, ports, one HDMI 1.4 out port, and one 3.5 millimeter audio jack. That sounds excellent. It is. It's been released in India and not in America. So we can't get it yet. Food. Sounds cool. And I don't know how much it is, because even if they sold it over here, it would be a different price. So, that's <laughs> well, that's all we've got for IoT, but I just well, wanted look to... Look out for that on the yeah. market. <laughs> that's all we've got for IoT, but I just wanted to give that a quick mention. Um, some local news, as we're in the summer of hell. Oh, that was bad timing. What did I do? That was bad. Let's try this again. Because we're in the summer of hell. That wasn't the right one either, was it? I, I don't know which one is which, honestly. They're all the same. That's the, they're all sound yeah, they're vaguely so familiar. Similar. That's the, they can I think, the same right, tone. Let me try the third one. I think this is it. Hey, come on. <laughs> Summer of Hell. There we oh, go. Oh, that's right. That's right. New York City trains are terrible, and they will kill you if you stand in front of them. No, um... That's probably well, I mean, true. I mean, they will. Don't stand in front of trains. It's a bad but, idea. Uh, the story goes that failing to rehabilitate our aging rail structure has caused many, 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 many problems for us in the tri-state area. Not just New York City, but the people that come into and leave New York City every day for work or for family. Like Christian. Um, his is the family. Um, let's see. There's, as Cuomo and de Blasio spar over subways, strap hangers lash out at MTA board meeting. And this is a quick bit from right here in New York. As the governor and the mayor squabble over the subways, those who actually ride the train for more than photo ops, because remember, de Blasio stopped the train to... Or he, what, did it, what, is it, what did he do? He stopped the train and, and removed all the homeless people from it he so he could have a clean a ride. He stopped a speeding train with his bare hands from going over a cliff. No, I'm serious. He stopped. He had a train stop because he didn't want to ride it with homeless people. But that's what you do. You just get off and go to the next car. Not when you're the mayor and you want... Why doesn't the mayor... <laughs> didn't the mayor used to have his own train? Isn't that why there was a private city hall stop? Like, why doesn't de Blasio just wheel out in his own car? I don't get it. Because then he'd take the six train over. I guess he would need two trains. One to go on the number tracks and one on the letter tracks since they're different widths. But anyway, we're getting distracted. Um, The errant trash bags, the garbled announcements, the scurrying rats, they all define our shabby system, said Adrian Untermeyer of the Riders Alliance, which I guess is a lobbying group. It's the the daily indignities, complained one strap hanger. I'm afraid to ride the subway, said another. Imagine what it was like in the 80s, jeez. A day after MTA chairman Joe Lotta, like a lot of BS, detailed a well-received plan to rescue the subways, it was clear that he has a long way to go before convincing riders and even some board members that relief is just down the track. Quote, it is currently a rubber stamp for the governor's policy. Oh, that wasn't him. I was trying to do my Jay Lotta impression. Um, <laughs> it's currently a rubber stamp for the governor's policy, said board member Andrew Saul. We have consistent confusion in direction, low morale, and the loss of many of our best employees. Those short-term fixes uh, that they've been implementing include better signal and subway car upkeep uh, to, re- to, re- to reduce delays and breakdowns, and... Eliminating some seats on some trains to ease overcrowding. Let that sink in for a minute. Be- the subways are overcrowded because there's not enough trains, and the trains don't go quickly enough because the tracks are not maintained well. So the MTA's solution is removing the seats from the trains 
to allow everyone to stand up. It's better what they than what they do in some countries. I mean, the other remember this is the MTA that also said you know we have too much trash in the subway, so let's have fewer ways of getting rid of the trash. Let's take away oh, the garbage yeah. cans. Let's take away the waste baskets. So people just either throw them on the tracks. Oh yeah, they're going to really pick them up and carry them to the appropriate destination to make sure that they t- they throw them into one of the six proper recycling sorting trash cans. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's going to backfire. Not to mention the fact that there were more track fires recently and there was that whole Operation Track Sweep thing where they have that ridiculous vacuum car that I thought it was like, I don't know, I thought it was something much more futuristic than it is, where like you just drive the train and then something like in the head of the train just eats the trash. But this is like like a vacuum that ha- that just duct tapes to a, di- a giant garbage bag that's on a cart that they wheel out at each stop. And uh, then they vacuum up the trash and put it back on the, uh, on the train, and they move to the next stop. That's not, yeah, that's disappointing. But that's what you get from government, so. <laughs> it sounds like a Dr. Seuss cleaning machine. Yeah, seriously. Uh, let's see. Um, our customers want to get to a situation where, from, uh, where they can get from point A to point B in the fastest way possible. Oh, yeah, that's the whole point of the MTA. But it's not going to be an easy fix, right? With the MTA and City Hall at odds over Lotta's call that the city bankroll half of the $800 million plan. The governor's allies at Transport Workers Union, that's the name, uh, Local 100, brought, bought airtime calling the mayor to pay up. Quote, he can't throw his hands up in the air and walk away, said uh, Tony Utano with the union. He can't throw his hands up and say, it's not the problem. And the mayor said that's not what's happening. Why would I want to give up New York City taxpayer dollars, which are not abundant, when the state has not even reimbursed the MTA for the money it took? Which is a fair point. What do you think, Tyler? The state has not reimbursed the MTA. So why is the state taking money from the MTA? Uh, the MTA is owned by the state of New York. It's yeah, not owned by the city. It took money away. I don't know. I heard crap shooting that every time you were saying that every time that uh, money gets allotted to the MTA, it just gets reallotted anyway. Yes, you're right. So even if they allocated more money to the MTA, the numerous le- le- numerous levels and layers of corruption in New York and Albany mean it's probably not going to get to go not to get to go where it needs to go. This it's is probably going to go to like Chris Christie Donut Foundation or something. Exactly, which is not for profit. Beach Donut Foundation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, here's here's one, but here's the only other thing on our uh, summer of hell. Train pain. When trains stall, why does help take so long to arrive? It's a question that has weighed on the minds of countless commuters, usually as they sit on a stalled train in one of the tunnels heading into the nation's busiest train station. Why does help seem to take so long to arrive? It's an issue that will persist long after Amtrak completes this summer's extensive repairs called the Summer of Hell at Penn Station. A linchpin in the northeastern U.S. rail system, Penn Station is undergoing accelerated repair work, which probably means normal pace, uh, this month and next to replace several thousand feet of track, switches, and other aging infrastructure. The speed was prompted by two derailments in the station that we had talked about previously on this show. Um... Even after the fix, though, there's going to be a problem because most of the breakdowns still happen outside of Penn Station and in the Hudson Tubes. 
It's a cramped 111-year-old tunnel under the Hudson River from New Jersey. Uh, and then there's also the tunnel between the East River and Long Island that New Jersey Transit uses and that Amtrak uses. And it's going to be, uh, those tunnels have to be rebuilt. At peak times, when 24 trains per hour move in and out of Penn Station, a disabled train in one of the Hudson River's two tunnel tubes can lead to misery for hundreds of thousands of commuters. But significant delays can occur even if a train breaks down in the tunnel during off-peak times. A very good rescue, and this is on an open track and at the time of day, is 45 minutes to an hour. That's Stephen Young, Amtrak's deputy general manager of its New York division. So if you're on an Amtrak train that gets stuck, or a New Jersey Transit train that gets stuck, your best choice, or probably the Metro North as well, it's going to take at least 45 minutes, if you're lucky. Optimal conditions. Young described the protocol from rescuing trains that starts with a whatever we don't have to talk about. Yeah. But that's why it's the summer of hell. So don't ride the train, you're going to die. Basically. Basically, yeah. Or at least you'll be rescued in 45 minutes to an 45 hour. 45 minutes a good to an hour if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, and this, is, uh, and, and this is what happens. Again, aging infrastructure needs to be rebuilt, and it is, and it is not getting rebuilt, and it is breaking down in the places where it is used the most, like transiting from New Jersey to New York. We transiting should have the technology for this. It should be better. We've we're got supposed, technology for it, but we just can't use it. flying cars right now. <laughs> well, there was a Hyperloop. Didn't Elon just get approval from the government to make a Hyperloop? It between, doesn't uh, fly. I should take off vertically from my driveway and just chill, and it should auto-drive me to Dunkin' Donuts while it flies. That. There's Dunkin' Donuts in the sky, and I high-five why don't George you just, Jetson. Why not just get I'm a jetpack and then have a guy <laughs> who just sits, like, hovers in the sky with donuts? No, because then I can't have my car autopilot drive me to the drive-thru and then to my job, and then... Well, do you want to... Do you, it's... It's also going to scratch my butt for me. All right, Tyler. I think you. I think you're, you're being too obtuse. It's the future. <laughs> Why can't we make trains that work decently? If I can't have a flying car, the subway should work okay. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> you know what really grinds my gears? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Let's see. What else? Uh. Oh, one other thing I wanted to touch on about upgrading to Mac OS Sierra. Right before they come out with, uh, uh, what is it, 10.13 uh, High Sierra, uh, which is that they've, re- they've replaced the system font in macOS t- uh, with something called San Francisco, which makes sense because San Francisco is a cool place and that's the, ba- the, largest major, or the closest major city to Apple. And why'd they make it? Why'd they make it? Uh, they like changing things. They don't no. want to use Helvetica anymore. They say that it's more legible. Like when they changed the typeface on the interstate signs from interstate to something gross. That yeah. was, they said it was because of legibility. Studies later the, have shown oh, they were wrong. It was so, for the watch. <laughs> so this uh, is another one of those. They say, oh, we've come up with this great new typeface. You know, we have Johnny Ive. He's the knight of design. Okay. His knighthood again. San Francisco. In San Francisco. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. His knighthood needs to be taken away. Again and again and again and again and again, we see these instances where he doesn't know what the, he's doing. Self censoring. He doesn't he know what he's doing. to go back to making the computers with the um, different colors. The colors? <laughs> yeah! That was the best thing he ever did! <laughs> just, go, just go back and figure out a new color for the next IMAX, Johnny. 
Don't make no, them white. Multiple colors, Johnny. Multiple. That's that, when there you, you go. No, it, no. You, you have something that changes the exterior color based on your battery life. Johnny, it's Get not that, that hard. Because the only other things he's introduced were things that were either thought of while Steve was still alive or just horrible. Like the touch bar. That's why they haven't added anything new into MacBooks. Touch bar was the worst. Not only is it the worst, I've seen people putting ads in the touch bar. That is disgusting. (sighs) The touch bar was a nail in the coffin for me. I will not buy another Mac unless they substantially change. Wow. You know, you're honestly not too wrong. I don't know what I'm going to do for my next laptop. Most developers that I know said that they're done with Mac unless they change. Because they're probably going to go to Linux after this. Yeah, and it's not just developers, it's people. I mean, they already lost a lot of film people because of of how they murdered Final Cut. And and they're going to lose more film people because the laptop is limited to 16 gigs of RAM. It's 2017. Right. Right. Come on, I mean, my laptop from 2013 has 16 gigs of RAM, and Apple's saying, oh, you know, we can't do it. My Hackintosh has 32, and that wasn't even that expensive. Make the computer a little thicker. We'll be okay. I don't awesome. even think it's that at this. Well, I'd say with the RAM, it's probably heat. It's probably heat and not uh, and not just the size. But anyway, unacceptable, unacceptable, unacceptable. Well, uh, Christian's not here, Tyler, but I've got but I've got one real GitHub issue of the week. My GitHub issue of the week is actually a petition that's been put on GitHub. It's a petition to open source Shockwave Flash and Shockwave Regular. And it is not called Shockwave Flash anymore. I am old. It's called Adobe Flash. Or the Shocker. (laughs) Anyway, Adobe is going to stop distributing and updating Flash Player and Shockwave Player, which they should have done 10 years ago. However... Flash, along with with its sister project Shockwave, is an important piece of internet history, and killing Flash and Shockwave means future generations can't access the past. Which is true. Spaced Penguin was one of my favorite games in high school. Games, experiments, and websites... And I made a few Flash websites that were horrible. Animation is cool. Games, experiments, and websites would be forgotten. Open sourcing Flash, and this is what they also say for macOS, they should open source that, uh, and Shockwave spec would be a good solution to keep Flash and Shockwave projects alive safely for archive reasons. Don't know how, but that's the beauty of open source. You never know what'll come up after you go to open source. Sounds like the healthcare bill. No. <laughs> uh, there might be a way to convert SWF or Flash or DRC or director files to HTML5, which I believe Adobe has been working on. Um... But we're not saying... What is it? We're, another possibility would be to have it as a separate browser. We're not saying Flash and Shockwave should be preserved as is. We understand that there can be licensed components you may or may not be able to release. Simply leave them out with a note explaining what was removed and why. We'll either bypass them or replace them with more open-source alternatives. Star this repo to sign the petition. In the, in the petition, if you just search GitHub open-source Flash, you'll find it. It has 5,508 5, stars, 5,506 stars, sorry, I just added 5,507, and uh, I think that would be a great way of, of, of kind 55, of fossilizing. It's up to 5,519 after me. I'm sorry? <laughs> it's up to 5,519 after me. Oh, there you go. It's a great way of fossilizing some, uh, a, a real cornerstone of the old internet. Eric loves the old internet. I do. It was a simpler time. Simpler times. Simpler times. You could get away with a lot more BS. So, 
<laughs> yeah, and that's because uh, Christian isn't here. That's our only GitHub issue for this week. So, Tyler, let's hear your plus one of the week. Our pull request plus ones are when we send out our well wishes and acknowledgments of awesomeness to people or other organization. Who's your first plus one for this week, Tyler? Uh, the first plus one is to the National Institute of Information and Communications, and that's in Japan. And they supposedly sent the first unhackable quantum uh, piece of data. Quantum data? So they did it. They accomplished it with uh, quantum computing, but it's supposedly unhackable. And what makes it unhackable? I have no idea. There's a lot of big words in the article. <laughs> okay. Well, this is why I wish we had Christian here. I, I, I'm not going to tear into that right now. That's and fine. We, you know, we get to the point of uh, encryption every week, and encryption is math, and yada yada yada. You can't stop math. Yada yada yada. Probably get to a point where it's basically unhackable. Otherwise, you're going to need a badass computer that can take years and years and years and years and years to unencrypt. So they did one that's basically the new Titanic of unhackable. So it'll probably be like the Titanic can get hacked in like 10 years. But, you know, as long as it's unhackable today, that's all that we really need. It says uh, this is from an article you posted satellite to ground quantum limited communication using a 50 kilo class micro satellite here. We report a quantum-limited communication experiment, and I don't know what that means. See, a lot of big words, right? Quantum-limited <laughs> communication can enhance the performance of LaserCon and is also a prerequisite for the intrinsically hack-proof secure communication known as quantum key distribution. And there is a quantum key cryptography uh, that I don't know what it is because I haven't looked it up in a long time. I'm not going to wow. pretend like I understand anything about that. Should have known that. Um, here we report a quantum-limited communication experiment between a microsatellite and a, in low Earth orbit and a ground station. Non-orthogonal polarization states were transmitted from the satellite. Orthogonal means perpendicular. Right. That's the only big word of these that I know. <laughs> <laughs> um... I mean, polarization, like, you know, the see, sunglasses. You see why I didn't go into the article too much? On the ground... <laughs> this, this isn't making us look good, Tyler. On the ground, post-processing received the quantum states with about uh, 0.146 photons per pulse. Clock data recovery and polarization reference frame synchronization were successfully achieved, even under remarkable Doppler shifts. Interesting. I guess the Doppler shifts would have definitely altered some of the data, though I don't know how laser-based communication actually works. In summation, people in white lab coats that use big words sent some stuff to themselves. Yes, and if we paid $175 for the full access, we could tell you more about this study. All right. (laughs) How about your next plus one of the week? The next plus one goes to... uh, Microsoft on GitHub. (laughs) This next GitHub issue. What are you doing? Uh, I this didn't is mean a, for the, it, it is an issue, but it's not. It just is a point that says that Microsoft has been uh, Microsoft's TypeScript, which is a statically typed JavaScript uh, language, has been deemed uh, Turing complete. And Turing complete means what? Uh, stuff. I didn't oh, see the on, movie about the guy. That's not. <laughs> that's not what that is. In a, I in in uh, I forget the technical com- definition. In computability theory, a system of data manipulation rules, such as a programming language, is said to be Turing-complete or computationally universal if it can be used to simulate any single-taped Turing machine. 
This concept is named, of course, after Alan, Alan Turing. A classic example is Lambda Calculus, which I don't know also what that is. This is why, these, both of these, I, I, I think we should have had Christian here. But unfortunately, he's uh, saving the internet with his code, I mean, so we can't. we've definitely already defined Turing Complete on this show. Yeah, but if we don't, if we can't even restate it, then we, <laughs> what are we going to do? Ask our listeners to spool through our, our tens of hours of coverage? Our listeners know how to use the internet. They can Google the technical definition. Every time okay. I try to give a shorthand definition of what it is, someone always says, well, technically, no. Well, technically, no. Well, technically, well, because, it's, like Schrodinger, you know. it's like Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's cat. Like, if I tell you it's just a cat in a box and he's either dead or alive based on whether you open the box, like, everyone's like, well, no, it's technically more than this and it's more than that. Then you got to read the Wikipedia page and it's like 40 pages and then it's confusing and then you don't know what the real answer is. You're right. I think that's because people just like proving other people wrong. And yeah. they like saying, you're wrong, I'm right because of this. But it's one of those answers where it's like, there's no, like, short answer. There's, it's a whole bunch of detailed crap. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I got you. <laughs> uh, here's a response. Just a pedantic tip. We might need to implement a minimal language to prove TypeScript is Turing complete. And they added a link to the Stack Overflow. And it says, hmm, seems this cannot prove Turing completeness. Nat in this example will always terminate. Excuse me. Because we can't generate arbitrary neutral numbers. If we do encode some integers, his prime will always terminate. But the Turing machine can loop forever. Interesting. I don't know about about uh, Turing completeness or uh, computational or universality. Yeah, but you'd know more if you watched a movie. I would know guy. more, and we'd <laughs> all know more if Christian were here. But alas, he's not. Okay. So I guess because it's been proved Turing complete, it means it's a real programming language, and now it can be used beyond just Microsoft? Maybe other people will start to adopt it. Maybe it'll make it its way stuff. into ECMAScript 2018. Who knows? I used it. I like it. And why do you use it over regular JavaScript? Uh, actually, it was a partner at work that used it, but she was interested in it. Uh, I don't know. I forget her exact reasons. Wanted to wanted to try it out. And I uh, really enjoyed it. I liked the, the way the code looked. It was uh, it was interesting to like see it all statically typed. And you had special custom types, and you really know what you were getting. And it was just great for uh, making the object orientedness a little easier and smoother to digest. Interesting, interesting. All right, well, let's move on as we're almost half an hour in. Uh, DefCon and Black Hat have happened. Well, DefCon happened last week, and I think Black Hat either happened this week or is happening this week, uh, or is about to happen. And on Def, the heels of Def that, Jam. the UPS stores in Las Vegas have stopped printing from URLs and USB sticks ahead of these hacking conventions. They say there's a, US, a UPS store in Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. Uh, they, they had posted a sign saying, quote, Due to the DEF CON hacking convention, we will be accepting emailed print jobs with attachments only. We will not accept <laughs> USB prints or any links. We apologize for any inconvenience. Attendees are often warned to take extra precaution over their online security. These can be little steps such as not sending passwords over Wi-Fi or using ATMs due to a surge in digital mischief-making. Mischief-making is a great, cute way of calling what they're actually doing, which is data exfiltration, system infiltration, and just illegal usage of these systems. You know, mischief how do you know they were doing data extraction? Maybe they just set the home screen of all the UPS because employees to butts. Because at DEFCON, there was something called the Voting Village, where your job was to hack a voting machine. And then, of course, once you've hacked the voting machine, you can get 
the voter database, which has everyone's information. Yeah, but... Yeah, yeah but what? <laughs> yeah, but it's not like the hackers are, like, breaking into that. It was like to... Wasn't it like a competition to see who could hack in, just to see, you know, the hackers... Yeah, a lot of it's just to see this way on the next the, election. When it happens for real, it's not just to see, it just is. Oh, yeah, it's kind of like the, you know, Olympics for the next spy or whatever that's going to crack that code. But... um. <laughs> but no, it wasn't like an opportunity for the hackers to just show up and crack an election machine and then send all the data to their server at home and store it all. Well, I mean, they still uh, they still could. Yeah, but no, 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 and it wasn't an actual. I mean, yes, while it wasn't an actual voting machine, you're right. I mean, I'm sorry. While it wasn't, it was an actual voting machine, but it wasn't actually used in an election. Uh, it was still very much a voting machine that is used in real elections. I mean, this is a, a Diebold Express Poll 5000. It runs Windows CE 5. It has a giant .NET app that uses WinForms for the, voting mach- uh, for the voting software, a proprietary bootloader, it's an ARM processor, and the database file is stored on a memory card that is removed via PCMCIA. So, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but you're missing the the hilarious point of this whole article. That they actually were very easily able to hack an election machine. No, that the UPS store was like, hey now, (laughs) you hackers are coming to town. (laughs) You can't just upload your files from USB sticks on our computer and try to print them off. It's not going to work. That's true, they are finally keen to that. I can only imagine what happened last year or the year previous. Yeah, exactly. Like, they probably... Hijack their whole system, or like sending using their their like whole UPS store as a free Wi-Fi port for like all the other hackers, and then they probably left and put meat spin on all of their desktops. That's true. That's true. We, we're, our printers can't stop printing gutsy. <laughs> I've even unplugged them. What's happening? Like we we don't want any funny business this year. Damn you, Capcom. <laughs> Or maybe um, they went the higher out and, like, plugged in USB sticks and, like, had it, like, just paused the computer while they were outside toilet paper in the place. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so, yes, there was, a, uh, there was at DEF CON a voting village. This was a first-time vi- a village called the Voting Village where you can join in the fun of breaking into various voting registration and voting devices. Uh, your imagination is the limit, they said. These devices use an ancient PCMCIA slash compact flash slot to transfer data and hold onto various database files on it. Oh, sorry, hold various database files on it. Luckily, the village provided a ton of PC cards to play around with and a PCMCIA to USB converter so we could use it as a storage device in our laptops since, you know, we don't have those anymore. General discoveries... uh, a general discover uh, sorry general discoveries here is a list of discoveries that we found useful in exploiting the software and i just gave you the rundown there um, let's see data exfiltration uh, hold on what happened is that my stuff isn't highlighted um, okay so let's see they've got a hard coded username and password so when you launch the express poll software you're required to to enter a consolidation number plus a username and password there is one hard-coded onto the software that always works. Username, one. Password, one, 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 one. That's it. Voting machines. Real voting machines. Damn. On the voting machine that you can access with password, one, 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 one. Not even the one I use for my luggage, which is one, two, three, four. 
They have an Ooh. unencrypted database. It's just there. Because, you know, why wow. encrypt something on these voting machines that only have extremely sensitive data? Come on, guys. Why bother? Uh, when starting the Expre Express Paul software, it looks for a, a file called pulldata.db3 on the memory card. It's a standard unencrypted SQL Lite database, including <laughs> literally all in... in I can't talk to them. This is what happened. We do a show on a weeknight at 10 o'clock. Uh, including literally all of the information. Polls, parties, voters, all of it. For those, playing uh, at home, <laughs> for those playing at home, they use the test database that comes with the program instead of installing a real one. Well, I mean, they, they probably generate one, but uh, anyway. Using That's, this information, yeah. an attacker can launch several types of attacks. Number one, data exfiltration. And I think we, we don't really need to go in. You could just copy the database. Um, yeah. The attacker could easily come with a card that has an empty database and silently swap out the card when they register to vote, thus obtaining the entire voter database, which includes name, address, and last four social security number, uh, signature, and many others. Uh, you could falsify voter information. For example, the attacker could forge their own database with fake voter info and place it into the machine when they, where they register to vote. Or other attacks. Your imagination, again, is the limit. These diebold voting machines... Uh, and if you want me to stop, you want, me to, you want to talk about that? No, I think we're good. They, these diebold voting machines have open USB ports, which they pose less of a threat, but it's still, why are they there? An attacker could plug any USB device that they wanted uh, and, uh, to launch a creative attack. It's terrible. I have tested this with my bash bunnies by spamming the letter A infinitely into one of their text boxes in an attempt to trigger a buffer overflow and, a cr and potentially crash the .NET app. But it didn't work. Interesting. There's a default web server by Windows CE running on port 80. That's another possible security risk. Yeah. Um, they've attempted other attacks like memory overflows. Uh, they tried installing a new bootloader like Grub. Um, conclusions outside of the unencrypted, the hard-coded password that is 1111 and the unencrypted database which you could easily access if you just swapped out the memory card with your own, these machines are pretty good. <laughs> outside of the very easily, easy ways that you can see who voted for what or change who voted for what, outside of that, they're fine. Yeah. So when people say, we don't need a paper trail because everything's on computer, that's really bad. When people say, this election can't be hacked, of course it can. When those same people then spend the next many months blaming uh, a foreign adversary for potentially hacking an election that they previously said can't be hacked, that is buffoonery and, hi and hypocrisy. So, we really need to step up our cybersecurity when talking about voting, every way around. Yeah. Absolutely. What's next? What is next? And this is uh, so many things to get to today. Um, so we did our plus one. We did the ransomware. Uh, oh, here's one. Um, this There's a Google Chrome extension called Copyfish. And it has been... Uh, it's been hijacked. And it's been hijacked by some attackers that have repackaged it with malware inside. So... Uh, when this happened over the last week, July 28th through today, basically. So if you um, use Copyfish, watch I, out. I don't know. I'm going to guess it's uh, something that allows you to copy stuff? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. It's free OCR software. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Need to extract text from images? Use Copyfish. But don't because they were hijacked recently. 
So, a team member received an email from, quote, Google, saying we needed to update our Chrome Chrome extension, Copyfish, otherwise it would be removed from the store. Click here to read more details. And then they clicked the link and they fell for a phishing scam. Much like that Google Docs link that happened uh, a a month ago or so, where... It looked like it was from Google, and it said, you know, who would this person wants to view this Google document? Yeah. And then it went to a website that almost was Google, but really was not. Scary. So the people who make Copyfish fell for a phishing expedition, much like John Podesta and his bullshit password of password. Just wanna, <laughs> every chance I get to bring that up, because he's the reason why this happened. Well, okay, well, not this, but the whole mess we're in with you know, Russia and the country and stuff. Um, okay, so someone got fished at Copyfish. Eh, that's funny. Um, but it's true. Next story. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Uh, yeah, they're really drawing this out. But basically... Yeah, basically they were fished. And they, they went to Google Tech Support that was a forum that was also not Google... Um, yeah, these guys messed up, but longer story short, Copyfish has been updated, and the hijacked version has been disabled on the Chrome Web Store, so feel free to download it. I didn't want to say that at the top, because then it would have killed this whole minute and a half of content. (laughs) But yeah, and also don't click links like that. Or if you're about to click a link, verify where it goes. If it's not actually going to Google.com, don't click on it. Yeah. All right. So, yes. Crypto update. Okay. And now, some another another recurring bit of kavefe for pull request. Ha- uh, uh, cryptocurrency. Hacker allegedly steals 7.4 million in Ethereum with an incredibly simple trick. It sounds like one of those uh, one of those ads. Yeah. And you can, too. And you can, too. That's right. Uh, A hacker allegedly has just stolen, and uh, just was a little while ago, around $7.4 million worth of Ethereum, the cryptocurrency that underpins the app platform. Oh, it's a worth of Ether, which underpins the app platform Ethereum. So Ether is the currency. Ethereum is the platform. By tricking victims into sending money to the wrong address during an initial coin offering, or ICO. This is according to a company called CoinDash that says its investors were sending their funds to a hacker. And because all of this is unregulated, it's perfectly fine. And by fine, I mean legal. legal. It's not ethical, but it's perfectly legal. Wow. Um, CoinDash's ICO, like many others, launched simply by posting a string of text representing an Ethereum address for investors to send money to onto the app's website. However, mere minutes into what was supposed to be another successful ICO... CoinDash warned that its website had been hacked and asked people to not send Ethereum to the posted address. It's still unclear exactly what happened, but it seems like the hack was incredibly simple. The hacker allegedly took control of the CoinDash official website and changed the text. That's it. Website hacked, says Emmanuel uh, Jimenez, an employee of CoinDash, wrote on their official Slack account. Well, that's cool. Guys, website is hacked. Don't send your ETH. ETH. The CoinDash account on the popular Bitcoin Talk forum wrote, "Yep." Um, and then it just talks about more and more. And um, the people that have sent their stuff, I think, have lost the money. 
All Coin Dash investors will get their tokens. We are working to solve the situation. I don't know if they actually have a solution. They lost money. All this stuff is so unregulated that they might just be SOL. Someone, yeah, someone made out like a bandit at this yeah. point. And this is, I think this is what happened in the stock market a hundred years ago, before all those regulations were put in place. Before that little FDIC thing came into play. Right. And now we're ruining that with all of the uh, <laughs> the ma- micro trading, the nano, nano trading or whatever it is. They want to cut off the tops of mountains. Uh to shave off a few milliseconds between New York and Chicago. Anyway, here's another one on cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency miners are renting 747s to ship graphics cards. That's right. If the price of your graphics card went up recently, it's because people are using them to mine Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Have you ever had a moment where you didn't know whether to laugh or cry? That's because the situation playing out in the graphics card market because of cryptocurrency's mining boom... Oh, that's because of that. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Because of the mining boom is happening. But just when we thought there was nothing left to report on the matter, it's come out that some of the most active Ethereum miners are renting 747s to ship orders of graphics cards. Yes, seriously. That is the sort of money that's at stake here. Cryptocurrency is highly volatile, Ethereum included. For miners with massive setups, shipping by sea is just too slow. That's insane. Some 36,000 units of Ethereum are collectively mined each day. At around $200 a unit, miners are competing for $7.2 million of worth of Ethereum each day. One point, at one point just a few weeks ago, those figures would have doubled with Ethereum spiking to $400, but also just a few weeks ago they would have tanked when Ethereum tanked to like $2, $12, whatever. Damn. Yeah, again, this is more like the stock market used to be. Uh, and I've got friends that are trying that are that are gamers and they're trying to get high-end graphics cards and they can't or they're mad expensive because they're all being bought up to mine cryptocurrency. Insanity. Insanity. Crypto insanity. Yes. And now for the best part, as I try to find my notes, which I hope I took some. And now for the best part of our continuing cafe, let's talk about. That was the wrong. That was the wrong one to use. <laughs> It's right under the right one to use. Let's talk about... Theresa May monitors the internet! And she has. Uh, Britain's interior minister, though this is not directly about her. Britain's interior minister, Amber Rudd, will meet with leaders in California's Silicon Valley this week, which was this week, to try and combat online content inciting extremism, the government said on Monday, which was yesterday. Rudd is expected to meet with social media sites and web giants, including YouTube, after she flies to San Francisco for a met... Uh, no, that's not. Shouldn't say that because it's sexist. I'm going to say for a manicure, but that's... Probably get her hair done. No, not in the room. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, the threat we face is evolving, rather, you know, as she repeats something that Theresa May, most of the other Commonwealth heads of state have said. The threat we face is evolving rather than disappearing as Daesh, the Islamic State jihadist group, loses the ground in Iraq and Syria, a senior government source said. Quote, the fight is moving from the battlefield to the Internet. After four militant attacks in Britain which have killed 36 people this year, senior ministers have reportedly demanded that the world's biggest internet companies do more to suppress extremist content and allow access to encrypted communications rather than, I don't know, trying to prevent some of these people from entering the country. Crazy. 
again, they're using the threat of terrorism to remove your rights and spy on you because they've let a few baddies in. It's like 9-11. We lost the privilege to fly. I'd say it's more like 1984, where... But, yeah. The party of love is the one that's spying on you. That was, like, a primitive example, but, like, now it's, uh, now it's a whole other thing. Yeah, exactly. And here's a paper about compromising encryption or endpoints is not about gathering evidence. It's about mass surveillance. And for, it, it just says, for good or bad, I have a tattoo that reads, Fidarse bene, non fidarsi e meglio. I butchered that. Which is loosely, tra- literally translated to, is to trust is, to, is good, but to not trust is better. Or colloquially, better safe than sorry. With that as a backdrop, here's a pop quiz and my answers to the same. And Tyler, I will ask you the same questions. Number one. Actually, let's get, let's get our, uh, our stuff going. Number one. Do you trust Theresa May? Yes or no? No. Do you trust Mark Malcolm Turnbull, the Australian Prime Minister? No. He said, the laws of Australia trump the laws of physics. Number three. Do you trust Cheeto Jesus, Lord Dampnut, number 45, our president, Donald J. Trump? Of course not. Good. Do you trust the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance? Five guys? That's yeah, funny. Five Eyes, that's America, Canada, England, Australia, New Zealand, that share intelligence and spy on everybody together. Do you trust them? Uh, no. Very good. Number five. Do you trust the Nine Eyes, the Fourteen Eyes, the NSA, the GCHQ, the MI6, the ASD, the GCSB, the CIA, or the CSEC? Why would I? Good. Number six. Do you trust the government of, my, of, of the country of my birth that their national security credentials hold up? Uh, I don't know much about Israel. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> no, um, of course not. <laughs> okay. That's good. Uh, you know what? I would also trust Israel with their national security credentials, so you're right. He was talking about, you know, England or America. <laughs> you were born in England? That's cool. Uh... Do I think that the current wave of proposed surveillance legislation is an attempt to normalize abnormal and illegal practices by our governments and intelligence agencies now that they've been exposed? Do you think that, Tyler? Yes or no? That was a big question. I couldn't follow all the double negatives. Do you think that the current wave of surveillance legislation is an attempt to normalize illegal behavior by governments and and intelligence agencies? It seems likely. Very good. Number nine. Do you think that this is all proposed, or all of this proposed legislation is engineered to save our governments and intelligence agencies the bother of doing endless crisis room PR? Is this a cult? No. This is a resistance. This is actually a resistance <laughs> to the stuff that the government is doing. And it doesn't matter who's really president, it just because the government keeps doing it. They've done it for our entire lives, they've done it for longer than our entire lives, and they're going to keep doing it. It doesn't matter who's in office. The bombs still drop. They know all my electronic history. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I think we can see where this is going. Yeah. So, uh, and yeah, and that's, uh, and then they go, the, the, the writer, uh, who is this, uh, Graham Joseph Penrose, 
Uh, he's a C-level advisor at Cybersecurity, InfoSec, IIoT, and Business Continuity. And he then goes into a whole breakdown of uh, the politics of fear and how they're using fear to get us to uh, remove our rights willingly. Uh, Australia is a proxy war for the Five Eyes, based on what we said earlier, how, how uh, Malcolm Turnbull says that encryption is underneath the laws of Australia. Let's see how that plays out. They will be the innocuous beta testing ground for whatever they do to us. Um, and then polishing turds... Uh, they say, uh, yet putting all that aside, when these two beauties, Turnbull and Brandis, uh, the Laurel and Hardy of cybersecurity, shovel off to home for uh, what? Oh, shovel off to some home for the bewildered in a few years. It is all of us that will be left with the legacy of their carry-on. Here are some of the victories that these two experts have presided over, and they don't even know how it works—not even a little bit. Australia's encryption thwart. Wow, thwart thought. Australia's encryption thwart thought is fraught. Jesus. That's a tongue twister. New law could force Facebook and Google to give police access to encrypted messages. And Australia's mandatory data retention scheme has passed both houses of parliament after the coalition and labor stared down privacy-based objections from minor parties and independents. This is happening. So, just it's more... It's happening. Yep. We'll watch it fail. Um, here's one from Andy Sandberg. No, it's Cheryl Sandberg, the Facebook COO. Oh, that's a letdown. Yeah, it's not going to be as funny. She said that an encryption ban would actually impede UK government investigations. Uh, she said while on BBC4's Desert Island Discs on Sundays, probably reviewing some nice chill tunes, or maybe they were hot and dreadful because you're on a desert. No, but it's a desert island, so it's still kind of chill. Are we, we melting his it. cool heart with an icy island song? Or no, we, we need to warm his, hot his heart? cold heart with a hot island song. Oh. Uh, yeah. What if we we freeze his cold, icy heart with with a warm... Oh, let's just play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... She said that removing encryption technology would only encourage users to adopt similar protections from providers beyond the reach of UK government. Quote, the goal for governments is to get as much information as possible. So when That's there are message the services like... Government. Sorry? That's not the goal for a government. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, that's, that's the goal for investigators, but... Sheryl Sandberg did say, the goal for governments is to get as much information as possible. So when there are message services like WhatsApp that are encrypted, the message itself is encrypted, but the metadata... Is not, explained Sandberg, meaning that when you send me a message, we don't know what the message says, but we do know that you've contacted me. If these people move off encrypted services and go to encrypted services in countries where we don't share the metadata, the government actually has less information, not more. And that's exactly what they'll do, myself editorializing, that's exactly what they'll do if we shut this down. So actually, allowing them to use these mainstream services is helping because we have the metadata, which is all that we can really get out of these communications, and if they leave, we're not even going to have that. So, right. Our Facebook policies are very clear, she said. There is absolutely no safe space for terrorism. Safe space for terrorism. It's getting a lot of play. Hate or calls for violence of any kind, except for cis-hat white people. Our goal is to not just try to pull off Facebook or pull it off Facebook, but to use artificial intelligence technology to catch it before it's even uploaded. 
Yes. Hmm. And that's where you've seen the, it looks like you're a bot. Did you actually mean to do this? Yes. So this so. lady read 1984 and thought, mm, that government's doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's where we're headed. We're heading toward a horrible melange between 1984 and A Brave New World. Melange of crap. Ah, that's funny. <laughs> Let's see. We've All got... Right. Next article. That... It's funny because even though today's a news day, we're doing all of the artic- these articles at the top because that's what we would do on any day. It's and we almost have a whole hour of stuff that has nothing to do with the main topic, which is more articles to read. Hope you're hungry for news today. I mean, the, the problem is that these articles are going stale. I would almost say let's, let's, we could stop the show in an hour and call it an easy day, but I, there's so many things that I, I want to get to. Um, well then, like, uh, let's not go so in depth into all the articles if we don't need to. That's true. Well, here's a good one to start. Snopes, in a heated legal battle, asks readers for money to survive. One, that's right. One step away from washing windshields for pennies, the popular fact-checking website called Snopes, that once focused on debunking flimsy internet rumors, has expanded into a 16-person operation that calls out political leaders for dishonesty. They're locked in a legal battle that it says it has drained the money it needs to survive. The site, which gets all of its revenue from advertising, bad move, created a crowdfunding page on Monday, raising $500,000 from readers in one day that would have rather donated to Wikipedia. Um, It says it needed 500 grand to uh, remain operational indefinitely, and they got that in one day. It says that proper media... The vendor that runs its advertising services has withheld the site's revenue and has refused to relinquish control of the site. That leaves Bardav, the company that owns and operates Snopes, with no way of moving the site to a new host or installing its own ads, said David Mickelson, a founder of the site. Quote, We've had no income whatsoever for the last several months, Mr. Mickelson said in an interview on Monday. Proper media and its lawyers tell a starkly different story. They say that Snopes employees will continue to be paid from ad revenue and that Mr. Mickelson should be removed from the company because of wasteful spending. The two sides, which have sued each other in separate claims, present entirely conflicting descriptions of who owns the company and what is being withheld from whom. The earliest chance for resolution appears to be a court hearing scheduled for now, this week. Sweet. Yeah. Now, there is this story, and this is from... That story was from The Times. This one is from The Daily Mail. And it talks about, and this is a very tabloidish article, fact-checking website Snopes on verge of collapse after founder is accused of fraud, lies, and putting prostitutes and his honeymoon on business expenses, and hasn't even told its readers those facts. Fact-checking website Snopes is on the verge of financial collapse for the third time after its owner was used for the third time we've mentioned. Uh, after its owner was accused of embezzling company funds to pay for his contentious divorce battle and lavish overseas trips with his new wife, a former Vegas escort and born actress. Did Christian start Snopes? Hmm. Was that, is that why he can't be here? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, that would have... It would have been funny if I hit the thing on the right time, uh, which I can't even... Here, let's try this again. Uh, just, just... Ah, man, I ruined it. <laughs> Oversee trips with a new wife, former Las Vegas escort and porn actress. Did Christian start and Snopes? And porn actress. 
All right, take it easy, guys. Without him here, it's hard to do the show. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's not true. It's just because I think it's because I mean we've done the show together plenty of times, but I, I really think Tyler that it's it's more the fact of this particular the particular articles that we're reading. I think would really benefit from his opinion. Sure, but we can't do that. There's nothing we can do now unless he somehow magically appears on the show. Um, hmm. But that aside, um, let's see. I'm trying to figure out where it says. Uh, at the same time, DailyMail.com revealed in December that the two co-founders were involved in a bitter divorce battle in which he was accused of embezzling nearly a hundred grand in company funds to spend on personal expenses and prostitutes. Barbara, I'm guessing his wife, asked a court at the time to restrict Mickelson's bank access, claiming his wild spending was going to de- deplete the company's accounts. Wow. And that's that. And here are some pictures of evidence. Wow. Um, that looks like that happens. That guy really likes hookers. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Might be a sleaze, but what can you do? What can you do? What can you do? Next article. Here's one. Foxconn to build $10 billion factory in the U.S. It's building a $10 billion plant in Wisconsin that is also being subsidized by tax money. Of course it is. This is an interesting article because I can't read it because of the paywall. Thank you, Rupert. It's a Wall Street Journal article. Ah. Yeah, but, um, but the thing is that if you just paste that headline in, you get the article from somewhere else. Like the New York Times. So, uh, they say, <laughs> TV was invented in America. We're going to, uh, Mr. Gao uh, said at the White House, before noting that products like LCD displays and the similar technology were no longer made here. We're going to change that. It starts today in Wisconsin. Well, this looks nice. This looks nice for a photo op. This looks nice for the president's let's make stuff domestically. That's great. That's really, that looks really good. But, but, this factory is being subsidized by the government, meaning that they're meaning that they're hiring people with the tax revenue paid in by people who already have jobs. So, what I'm saying is, if you work in Wisconsin, you're paying the government to hire people to work at Foxconn to sell you an iPhone that you will (laughs) also have to pay for. Oh, well. Is that... That's it? That's all you got? Yeah, it sounds nominal. I don't know. I'd have to look more into it. Where I mean, it's going. not... It's it's not... Where's the rest of their budget going, you know? Whose budget? Wisconsin? Yeah. They don't have any money. That's the problem. They, that- uh, they've they cut a bunch of taxes, and the only money that they can get is by cutting things like education, which is really bad, and their education is already in the shitter. So, I don't know. Maybe they but Scott Walker, bankruptcy? the governor of Wisconsin, still... Is making these great, great decisions, and by great I say it sarcastically because it's not. Um, Maybe they should just burn Wisconsin for the insurance money and move to Michigan. Nah, no. And <laughs> <laughs> maybe after the maybe after the Foxconn factory is built. Um, yeah, it says. Oh, I just had this. Uh, let's see. It says. Uh, in the first half of 17, the economy added a monthly average of 180,000 jobs. The manufacturing sector alone gained 41,000 jobs overall in that six-month period. 
Wisconsin was among the nine states in the Midwest that helped tip the election to Mr. Trump in November. At 3.1%, its unemployment rate is well below the national average of 4.4%, but the loss of relatively high-paying blue-collar jobs has taken a toll in many parts of the state. Both Mr. Ryan, Paul Ryan, and Mr. Walker, Scott Walker, are influential national figures in the Republican Party, adding to Wisconsin's appeal for Foxconn. And I was trying to say, I was trying to see, like, they say even... If the, even if the project did ultimately produce, and people are quite skeptical, even if the project produced 25,000 new jobs, it would be a tiny fraction of the number of jobs that the U.S. economy has added for most of the recent recovery. In the first half of 2017, oh, it was actually right above what I was reading, because uh, I didn't highlight this article because I highlighted the Wall Street Journal. Anyway. So this so, project that they say will produce 40,000 jobs might produce half of that. The people of Wisconsin are paying for a factory that will be used to make iPhones to sell back to them, and the number of jobs that are being added in Wisconsin have to be taken away by automation. And you're suggesting that the guy that wants to gut uh, welfare and uh, Social Security is giving government handouts. Yes, because it's government ha- governments hand out stuff all the time. But the funny part is, it's on the they budget ha- of a state that <laughs> whose budget he doesn't manage. No, no, no. It's about Scott Walker. It, it, oh, yeah, it's Scott it's Walker only too. at the White House because of the Trump's uh, Made in America program. All right, we made all my hats in America. They're doing it. Remember, governments of any flavor love handing out money. They just do it to certain people. Yeah. In, in America, we, we love giving money to large corporations that are already immensely profitable. And also the military and other countries. Right. Like Israel. So this makes perfect sense that they're going to screw the education systems for some more blue-collar jobs in manufacturing that will eventually or quickly be replaced by robots. Yep. I would, I would actually – I'd be much more on board for this if there weren't the government subsidy. You're telling me that Foxconn's margins are so low that they can't afford to open up a plant in Wisconsin? Really? I don't buy that. I'm sorry. Why don't they open up a general assembly there? Teach people some skills. Yeah. They'll teach them how to use the robots that will take over the jobs. They can program the robots that will take over their jobs. (laughs) There you go. All right. Here's the next story. Mysterious Mac malware has infected victims for years. This is from The Motherboard. A mysterious piece of malware has been infecting Mac, oh, sorry, has been infecting hundreds of Mac computers for years, and no one noticed until a few months ago. It's the long con. Earlier this year, an ex-NSA hacker started looking into a piece of malware that he described to me as unique and intriguing. It was a slightly different strain of a malware discovered on four computers earlier this year by security firm Malwarebytes, known as Fruit Fly. The first strain had researchers scratching their heads. On the surface, the malware seemed simplistic. It was programmed to mainly to, uh, it was programmed mainly to surreptitiously monitor victims through their webcams, capture their screens, and log keystrokes. But strangely, it went undetected since at least 2015. There was no indication of who could be behind it, and it contained, quote, ancient functions and, quote, rudimentary remote control capabilities, malware bites Thomas Reed wrote at the time. The second version of Fruit Fly is even more puzzling, according to Patrick Wardle, the former, the former spy agency hacker who now develops free security tools for Apple computers and researches Mac security for the firm Synac. Eh. 
Or Synac. Hmm. It should be Synac because it's like a TCP connection. Anyway. Um, Wardle told Motherboard. Wardle told Motherboard in a phone call that when it first. When he first discovered Fruitfly 2, no antivirus software had detected it. More surprisingly, it looks like it has been lurking for fi- around for five or ten years and infected several hundred users. Fruitfly and Fruitfly 2 are also, are also mysterious. Neither Reed nor Waddle, Waddle know its mechanism of infection. Whether it takes advantage of a flaw in macOS's code, is installed by social engineering, or some other way. For that reason, and because Apple didn't respond to several requests for comment, we're not sure if these computers are still at risk. It said seven, several hundred computers were infected yeah. by this? That's several hundred, which is a lot for Macs, because you would think that your Macintosh is immune to malware when we always say it's not. It's just that it's not targeted because nobody used Macintoshes. But now it is. And they even say in this article, this year we've seen more Mac malware than in any previous year. Oh, boy. So what they did was, Wardle created his own command and control server for Fruitfly. And it actually, he discovered that, uh, he discovered that people were connecting, like, infected computers that were outside of his lab were connecting to his command and control computer, or his command and control server. And it says around 400 victims infected with Fruitfly started connecting to it. Wardle could have taken over those computers or spied on them if he wanted to. Instead, he warned law enforcement, which is now apparently investigating the case. It's crazy. The moral of the story? Just because they have a Mac, it doesn't mean they're safe. Yeah, so Mac owners, you can't get so adventurous with the porn sites anymore. Well, yes, you, you, should, be, you like should be using... It used to be free and opening game, but like now, like you got to watch out. Well, can't what just... I would say is that, uh, just to disable scripting, I would bet that if you went to a website and you disable JavaScript, then it would have a much harder time trying to hack into your computer or, or exploit something because it's not running any scripts when you load the page. I wonder how many porn sites would work, though, without JavaScript. None of them. That's what I'm imagining. I could yeah, t- so uh, what do you recommend people do? Uh, torrent porn. No. It's old-fashioned. Or you no, go that's the, another the, way to get a virus. And torrenting store, is illegal. You can buy porn. You can still do magazines. No, good. come on, Tyler. There's a really good Ubuntu in a VM. End of story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. Disposable. Disposable. Regeneratable. Regenerable. Yep. Yep. Flash drive in a VM. Won't infect your computer. Oh, sorry, it doesn't have to be on a flash drive, but that would be another level of separation. But So, ladies and gentlemen, if you go to Eric's house and there is a minimized uh, virtual machine that's on his desktop... That's unfortunately not what I... That, I don't even <laughs> take my own advice. I do something much worse. Um, but that's... It's all nice and clean now because I reformatted my computer. <laughs> so, I, and let me tell you, as a geek, uh, going to college in the early 2000s or mid-early mid, mid 2000s, uh, the number of people's computers that I've had to clean porn storms off of, it is not good. So, people... You wrap it before you tap it. I don't have a rhyme for this. So just use that metaphor for watching porn on your computer. You need level. You need layers of separation. So, more Apple BS. Apple removes apps from China Store that help internet users evade censorship. Aw. That's right. trying to buy an Android now. 
China appears to have received help on Saturday from an unlikely source in its fight against tools that help ev- users evade its great firewall, Apple. Software made by foreign companies to help users skirt the, company's, the country's system of internet filters has vanished from Apple's App Store on the mainland. One company called ExpressVPN posted a letter that it had received from Apple saying its app had been taken down because it includes content that is, quote, illegal in China. Another tweeted from its official account that its app had been removed. It's super strict over there, that firewall. Yeah, it is. But, I mean, Apple, I guess because Apple does so much business with China that they kind of have to comply when the Chinese government says, hey, could you take these down? Oh, yeah. Because then they'd be like, no, and they'd be like... Oh crap! So we're gonna go make all our iPhones in the United States? You'd be like, yeah, right. Like, oh. Which you know, they they try to have big balls when they talk to our government. Like, we want to uncrack this iPhone because it's secure. But uh, you know, if China asks them, <laughs> I don't know. If well, we ask China to ask them, I don't know. But <laughs> the Chinese government definitely gets more companies. <laughs> if Trump to- asked Putin to ask China, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> to, to crack an iPhone that we ship to China that they don't know about, will they do it? <laughs> to crack the iPhone, we have to play a game of old school telephone. <laughs> <laughs> Where the number that you dial is actually your password. No, it's not. that's not telephone. I mean, that is a telephone that's not the game. That's anyway. NSA telephone. Um, yeah. And that's... I mean, it's, it's, it's odd because, you know, Apple really appreciates openness and they want to break the rules because they're, they're all nice hippies, man. Yeah, and but if you were in China, it'd be nice to search for the word freedom or stuff like that. That might be blocked. No, I'm sure it's freedom isn't blocked. That's too transparent. I think it's one of them. There's stuff um, like that. There's like, it's like democracy or freedom. There's some, like, basic words that you can't search for in China. Yeah. It's that um, great firewall is mucho, mucho great. Check this out. Sunday Yakubat. Abitus, his name is Sunday, uh, Yakubitus, I'm guessing he's Greek, president of Golden Frog, a company that makes privacy and security software, including Viper VPN, and it said its software, too, had been removed from the App Store. Quote, We gladly filed an amicus brief in support of Apple in their backdoor encryption battle with the FBI. So we extre- we're extremely disappointed in learning that Apple has bowed to pressure from China to remove VPN apps without signing any Chinese law or regulation that makes VPN illegal. That is a good point. That is a very good point. Apple's doing this. It's buried in their terms of service that they can, yes, but they're doing it. They're saying it's illegal, but they're not pointing to why it's illegal. Yep. That's like saying, I'm not letting you do that because I'm sure someone will get offended by this. Well, are you offended? I'm not offended. I have a good sense of humor. But I th- as someone's going to, so just don't. Well, well you know, if they, if they do, I can talk to them. No, 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 no. Just don't. You don't want the trouble. Don't do it. Well, if you've never held back a joke for, you know, that very reason, then you've probably lost a lot of friends. <laughs> I mean, that goes both ways. You can lose many friends for saying jokes that people don't like, so it works out. I mean, it doesn't work out. It's a, it's a minefield. But that's another story. I watch too much Family Guy. I make the joke. There you go. Let's talk quickly about progressive web applications. This still has something to do with Apple. Progressive web applications are one of the most exciting and innovative things happening in web development right now. They're so And progressive web apps are a Google effort, and they say... uh, Google says that PWAs are user user experiences that have the reach of the web and are reliable, fast, and engaging. 
And those three weasel words will tell you what a progressive web app is. Reliable, when launched from the user's home screen, service workers enable a progressive web app to load instantly, regardless of the network state. That's really the whole thing right there, is that a progressive web app relies on service workers and a cache manifest to ensure that even though it's a web app, even though you're launching it, it without an internet connection, it still works like a native app. Hence the reliability. It's wild. It can be written entirely in JavaScript, but uh, but it's launched like it is native because the operating system just has support for it, which makes sense in a world where so many apps are just written in HTML and then they're packaged in a web view and that's the app. Yeah. Uh, Google says they have to be fast. 53% of all users will abandon a site if it takes longer than three seconds to load. And once loaded, users expect them to be fast. No janky scrolling or slow-to-respond interfaces like Google Voice. (laughs) Fix your shit, Google. Um, I I use Google Voice app every day, and it is really absurdly slow for a company that also prides itself on how fast its DNS requests come back. Like, I don't know what they're doing. PWAs should also be engaging. They're installable and live on the user's home screen without the need for an app store. They offer an immersive, an immersive full-screen experience with help from a web app manifest file that can even re-engage users with web push notifications. So, we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about accessibility online, and we talked about cache manifests and, uh, and other ways of, of storing data offline. And... PWAs sound really cool. The problem is the actual support, which doesn't really exist. While Google has embraced the technology and added support for Chrome for it in Chrome for Android, which I guess, I guess that's what you would do. It all kind of launches in a web browser anyway, so it has to be at the browser level and the OS level. Um, I don't know. Apple has abstained from adding support to mobile Safari. All they've done is for is to say that it's under construction. Seemingly no discussion about it whatsoever. Yeah, I've been waiting for them to come around on their stance behind PWAs, but so far, it just hasn't happened. And since life is short, I've been learning React Native in the meantime. Which is true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, they say Android is now 86% of the global mobile OS market, so if you do want to make a PWA, 86% of all smartphones are Android. Which is a high number. It's almost as high as PCs were in the early 90s versus Macintoshes. Uh, almost, but not quite. I think that was like 92 or it was over 90% were PCs or Windows. Um, yeah. Right. So here's a list of things. Uh, sorry, let's go up. Let's go up. Service workers are what allow you to do all the awesome and exciting things that PWAs represent. Again, service workers are a library in JavaScript that are native to uh, ES6 and ES 2017, where they can do stuff in the background, hence the name service worker. They act as a service, and a service is decoupled from the UI, so it just runs as its own... Christian's going to tell me I'm wrong. It's probably not running as its own thread, but it's running separately from the process that's running your UI, so it doesn't block anything from happening. Fabulous. All right. Yes. Next article. Here's... Uh, let's see. Well, I just want to... I just want to... Uh, Note really quickly. Here's a list of things you still can't do with mobile Safari due to Apple's refusal to support PWAs. And this is really bad. One, create an app loading screen. Can't do that. No app loading screens, okay. Two, can't use push notifications. 
Three, can't use it offline, which is the whole point. Four, can't create an initial app UI to load instantly, also the whole point. And five, prompt installation to the home screen through browser-guided dialogue, which does exist on Safari if you just hit the middle button and then hit add to home screen. Huh. And then it says, even still, and I've definitely experienced, experienced this as, uh, as having made a full-screen website for mobile Safari, here are some problems that even in the latest iOS, mobile Safari has. The loading screen doesn't work. Uh, regression, close to 18,000 views, no response from Apple. Uh, fixed headers flicker, my biggest pet peeve and ultimately why I disabled it on my product. That's annoying. And of course... The 300 millisecond tap delay that was finally removed from mobile Safari was not removed in full screen mode. Geniuses. Sweet. Geniuses. And the the moral of this story is they say Apple treats web apps like second class citizens because they don't generate money like native apps do on the web store. Thanks, Apple. Yes. And... Let's see, we talked about that. Uh, Mac Malware, we talked about. Firewall China won't support progressive web apps. Um, Let's see. Uh, Basically, somebody is saying that you should, and this is another Medium post, and I found out the Medium has zero weight because anyone can write an article for Medium. So maybe I should. The the guy, his name is Eric, uh, not me. But he's also a compassionate entrepreneur. Um, he says native apps are doomed because of progressive web apps that aren't being supported right now. So we're kind of stuck using native apps. The conclusion to this longer story that we don't have time for is that progressive web apps may very well be the future of mobile development, which is fantastic because it significantly reduces the burden that you'll have to consume while creating this type of content. But... That support doesn't exist now, and it doesn't look like Apple really cares about that, which is even worse. The Apple has lost their, they've lost their touch with developers in any industry, not just our industry, in any industry. They've lost touch with that, and they're, oh, let's make, let's make a, a three-pane uh, swipe-up thing from the bottom so then we move your volume onto its own screen. You'll never be able to find it. Let's spend hours on that. And not on something that people would like, which is your native browser, the Internet, the Internet Explorer for the iPhone, can't support. It's not, it's not progressive. It, it's about as progressive as IE was. And honestly, Edge probably has better support for this. Probably. So it's, it's really bad. Apple needs to wake up, and they're not. And they, whenever they get complacent, somebody steals their lunch. And it's going to happen again. It's going to be in a big way. And they might not be able to escape it this time. We'll see. They narrowly, narrowly escaped it with the phones. And then they managed to do it, and they managed to do a good job with the tablets. Narrowly. They're not, whatever the next one is, it's not going to be easy. And they might not recover. Yeah. And, like, much like Michael Moore says, I don't want to live in this kind of America. I don't want to live in America where Apple isn't a premium brand. And I'm not leaving. So, fix it, Apple. Or hire me. I'll help fix it. I'll yell at people until I'm blue in the face. That's all Steve did. I know what he wanted. Do it. (laughs) Chip chop. All right. Here's some good news for this week. 
We reported last week that Microsoft Paint was being removed from the Windows Creators update. Well, it sounds like Microsoft has heard us, and they said, why would a company remove a paint program from a creating up software update? Well, paint is here to stay, and it will not be removed from Windows 10. So we can all rejoice with happiness. Yes. All right, settle, set, settle down. Not that much happiness, guys. Um, that's right. Because of all of the wonderful feedback that our listeners, and we're going to say that we're going to take this victory. All right. All right, guys. Let's take this. We're going to claim the victory for pull requests on this one because all of our wonderful listeners have talked to Microsoft. Microsoft has listened and said, okay, we're not going to pull paint from the Windows 10 Creators update, but they still kind of are just going to be on the App Store or the Windows Store. That's right, guys. It's from viewers like you. Thanks to viewers like you, we've changed the world. Fantastic. And when you miss out on Windows Paint, remember, go to the Windows Store to download a program that's 30 years old. Also, from Microsoft, Windows Subsystem for Linux is out of beta. Which, I don't know why this isn't called Linux Subsystem for Windows, because that's what this is. This isn't allowing. This isn't Wine. Wine is a Windows subsystem for Linux, where you let where you can run Windows programs on uh, on software like Ubuntu. This is the opposite. This allows you to run Linux commands inside of a Windows PowerShell. So it should be the Linux subsystem for Windows. But Microsoft, of course, can't get marketing right. So <laughs> they wanted their name first. Right, because it's grouped with all the all the other Windows, like Windows Identity Foundation and Windows PowerShell 2.0. While it's nice, there are a few things that Microsoft does warn you about. Like, of course we'd be remiss if we didn't take a moment to remind ourselves of our key Windows subsystem for Linux, WSL, scenarios. You want to, one, run Linux command line tools for development administration. Oh, and administration. Two, share and access files on the Windows file system from within Linux. Three, invoke Windows processes from Linux. And four, invoke Linux processes from the Windows command line. And they show, like, ba uh, in, a, in a PowerShell, bash, flag, C, and the, uh, it's basically a Linux command. And it works in, right in Windows. Yeah. I guess if you can invoke Windows commands from Linux, then it is a Windows subsystem for Linux. And I guess you would download it for the specific distro. I don't know. It's even better than having the Git command line tools set up in your Windows terminal. There you go. And it's even better, or it might be as good, as having an Ubuntu virtual machine for web development and porn. So, if you do that, you should have separate virtual machines. Yeah, but nothing's as good as porn, so... That's right. And one last thing about Microsoft, since we spent all this time about Apple, let's talk about Microsoft again. Someone created a cross-language compiler, a cross-piler, from PHP to ASP.net. This is something that would have been useful 10 years ago. The PeachPie PHP compiler project joined the .NET Foundation this week, and I'm trying to get my head around it. PHP in .NET, on .NET, under .NET, what sounds, compiles to what? Why would I want awful. this? How does it work? And they show someone actually getting WordPress to run without PHP being installed using this cross-compiler. It's crazy. And what it does is it creates an intermediate language that it compiles the PHP into that basically it looks like assembly and then the, uh, the, the .NET compiler reads that and pretends like it's real code. 
Damn. Yeah. Some smart And they cookies. say, but why? Why would somebody want to do this? The answer is simple. They're masochistic. Why would anyone want to do this? They say it's because of performance. Co compiled code is fast and also optimized by the .NET just-in-time compiler for your actual system. C-sharp extensibility, sourceless distribution, the power of .NET, right, uh, it allows the compiled WordPress clone to run in a, a .NET JIT uh, secure and manageable environment. You mean like a Docker container? <laughs> Updated through no, Windows it's Update. totally right. different. Totally Run, gonna be worse than the Docker container. And then, of course, there's no need to install PHP, even though you might want to, because there are some things that this can't do. So, yes, and they show. And I think it might just be, like I said, there might be. It might just be things that don't require external libraries to run. I don't know if this can actually just compile any PHP code or just things that run with the native PHP core. I don't know if this also compile. I don't know. And I don't know if this will run. I guess you don't need any of the modern PHP software suites like uh, FPM or HHVM because it's not actually using PHP. I think in conclusion, um, who cares about ASP.NET or PHP? So, Yeah, like I said, this is 10 years too late, and it looks like our podcast is going on a little too late. So how about we wrap it up with one more story? Tyler, you can pick. I'll give you the choice. Oh, Do you man. want to pick... Researchers shut down AI that invented its own language. You can talk about SoundCloud shutting down. Pirating scientific papers. Where's all my CPU gone? Or your next creative partner could be a bot. I like pirating scientific papers. Okay. And then that's where we'll go. Uh, really quickly, the uh, where's all my CPU gone, the answer is Slack. That's it. So we just uh, saved the whole article. The answer is Slack. Slack's a pig. Their next update might fix it. Uh, but it probably won't because Slack is a fork of Chrome, which is a monster. So right. Much like line, Adam. You have a bunch. Much like Adam, which is just a fork of Chromium. And that's why that's a pig, too. So, Spotify as well. Yeah. Exactly. But these are all better than iTunes, which is its own thing and still hogs way more memory than anything well, else on Earth. That's, be that's, that's because iTunes was originally, what was it? It was like they bought some bad piece of software, and then they took like that old, it wasn't Music Match, but it was some like jukebox from the late 90s, and then they added a bunch of Apple scripts on top of it, and then changed the assets, and then it became iTunes. But in the internals, it was still very much like whatever the thing was. Maybe it was Music Match, I don't know. Um, anyway. Moving on. Moving on. Sci-Hub's cache of pirated papers is so big, subscription journals are doomed, data, data analyst suggests. There is no doubt that Sci-Hub, the infamous and, according to a U.S. court, illegal online repo of pirated research papers, is enormously popular. But just how enormous is this repository? Their findings published in okay, their findings published in a preprint on the Peer J journal site. The J is not for Jew. On the twentieth of July, <laughs> indicate that SciHub can instantly provide access to more than two thirds of all scholarly articles, Good. an amount that Himmel, Himmelstein. Yeah, that's a, see, that's a word that really sh should be an R, but it's an L. Himmelstein says even higher than he anticipated. 
For research papers protected by a paywall, the study found that PSYOP's reach is greater still, with instant access to 85% of all papers published in subscription journals. For some major publishers, such as Elsevier, I don't know, uh, more than 97% of their catalog of journal articles is being stored on Sci-Hub servers, meaning that they can be accessed there for free. Given that Sci-Hub has access to almost every paper a scientist would ever want to read, and can quickly obtain the requested papers it doesn't have, could the website truly topple traditional publishing? I mean, yeah, that's great. Scientific papers are not a business. It's really gross that people make businesses out of that. We have Wikipedia for understanding everything else in this world. Why should we like hold the best data and the best science behind a paywall, you know? Well, there's a couple things. One, Wikipedia does need money, and they ask for donations, and if they don't get donations, it probably will go behind a paywall. Uh, two, information. we're in the information age, in the information economy. Information has to come at a price. That's why encyclopedias and dictionaries cost money. But... I- I just think, I, uh, I think it's a, a big stranglehold. I think that like the the well, amount of like money this. it costs to join JSTOR is just gross. And so like once you're out of college and you lose your your free JSTOR license, how do you how do you view stuff? How do you research? How do you make a difference other than paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars? You're absolutely right. And I think what's happened is over the last century, people have built many empires on distribution, and you can't do that anymore because the only distribution that you need is the internet. Yep. And and and. Uh, uh, what did you say, JSTOR? JSTOR. JSTOR, they built a business on distributing information and on being a middleman. And so what happens is that someone came around with and just pirated their stuff, and the question is, because SciHub has been pirating so many papers, why don't scientists just go there and publish their stuff? If, if the, if the yeah. scientists that are requesting that information are going to Sci-Hub, why, how about the scientists that are presenting that information? And then they cut out Pier J, and, and then uh, it removes the middleman from the equation. And then Pier J sits around and cries and sues everyone. <laughs> exactly. Well, the thing is, is I'm sure they would, they would say that the cost is to ensure that the articles that they publish are actually of quality, but any John Oliver's show will tell you that that's full of lies. So, yeah. You don't yeah. need that. You need a community driven by peers well it's not even that it's that most peer-reviewed stuff isn't peer-reviewed and even the peer-reviewed stuff they play with the p-values and they play with the little they 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 massage the numbers to get the result that they want and um and the people that review it do the same thing interesting it's a corruption of science so yeah that's that all right you want to you want to end it tyler or do you want to do one more article uh, we can do another one. Let's talk about SoundCloud. Right. SoundCloud, great. And this will be the last one for tonight. Once upon a time, God created heaven and earth, and on the second day, no, uh, a little, a little quicker than that. <laughs> if you want an example of when SoundCloud's mission to be a free-for-all music sharing venue collided with its desire to go mainstream. The time it actually banned Justin Bieber is a pretty good place to start. In late April 2014, a user named Sir Bizzle reported a song titled We Were Born For This on SoundCloud. The sparse acoustic track sounded so much like Justin Bieber's fake voice that the listeners assumed that it was the Canadian pop star. It quickly racked up a few thousand plays, chatter on social media, before SoundCloud flagged the profile, assuming Sir Bizzle, Sir Bizzle, 
was an imposter with an ill-gotten Biebs jam and took the song down. Using SoundCloud's online complete form, Sir Bizzle asked that the track be reinstated. The company declined his appeal, noting that the account's associated address, 123 Everywhere Street, was clearly bogus. And yeah, it is bogus. You should use 123 Fake Street. (laughs) Sir Bizzle responded with a selfie of Justin Bieber holding a notepad with a greeting to SoundCloud's employees. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I just saved Bieber! Wrote one employee on an internal... I can't talk. Wrote one employee on an internal email thread after verifying it was the artist and restoring the song. The company's communica- uh, community and artist relations teams jumped into overdrive to placate the world's biggest pop star. Three days later, Bieber, uh, three days later Bieber's label, Island Def Jam Music... <laughs> really? That's his label. Rehashed the issue, issuing a takedown notice for the tune before retracting the statement after learning that the artist himself had posted it. Former SoundCloud employees familiar with the Sir Bizzle incident reported a point to it as an encapsulation of the company's promise, missed opportunities, and inability to coherently work with an entrenched music industry. Three years after Beaver's selfie, SoundCloud has squandered its position as a maverick but beloved audio, a maverick but beloved audio platform, comma, and failed to believe, to, and failed to build a meaningful business. In an era dominated by Spotify, SoundCloud has been, at best of times, a startup in stagnation, and at the worst of times, an organization in disarray. Once harboring aspirations to be the YouTube of sound, the Berlin-based company struggled to remain viable, hamstrung by Hamburg, no, hamstrung by the management missteps and ineffective business strategy, and a stubborn music industry that would rather it had never even existed. In early July, SoundCloud had laid off 173 people about 40% of its workforce, shuttering down satellite offices in San Francisco and London in an effort to stave off bankruptcy. This is a very opinionated article. Well, yes, it came from the best news source in America, BuzzFeed. Oh. They're good enough for the White House. (laughs) Yeah. So, them and InfoWars. Anyway... All right, Tyler. Well, that's not all the news that we've got for today, but that's all the time we've got for news. So, I think it's time to end. Would you approve of this poll request? Certainly would. And I would ask Christian, but he's probably still working. So, let's all hit merge. And we'll see you next week. We don't know what day. Right here on Poll Request. This has been the Pneumonium Production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. This week's theme music provided by Volkpack. Visit them at V-U-L-F-P-E-C-K dot com.